Good morning and welcome to Catechesis. I'm going to try to make sure that my headset doesn't fall off and make things difficult, but let's begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, by our baptism into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you turn us from the old life of sin. Grant that we, being reborn to light new life in Him, may live in righteousness and holiness all our days through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so we are back and at it because uh, we're going to be looking at uh, baptism today and hopefully get started on the Eucharist a little bit. But um, I want to turn your attention back to the previous uh, section. This will begin with we'll begin looking at this just in review on question 121 on page 55. What is the sacrament? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So the first assumption is that there's an outward and visible sign, right? Um, every sacrament has something we can see, touch, taste, feel, etc., um, which is a sign. And signs are... Um, often misunderstood because in the way that we use the word sign, we think that the sign has nothing to do with the actual thing itself. And uh, actually, uh, in, the, in the medieval world and as well as in the ancient world, a sign is much more, uh, much more effective than that. A sign actually gives you the thing that it, that it signs forth. Um, now, to, to bring us up to speed even further, um, there are uh, two sacraments ordained by Christ as generally necessary for salvation, and those are yeah, baptism and the Eucharist, right? Um, and the reason that we teach that is that's actually the teaching of Holy Scripture. Um, and so Anglicanism has insisted that the teaching of Scripture is that these two sacraments are generally necessary for salvation. Now, what does that mean, generally? Well, it means generally, right? Uh, are there exceptions to these rules? Well, yes. Why? You also have to go back to first principles, right? Because God can do whatever He wants, right? God is not bound by sacraments, um, and yet God promises that through sacraments, grace will be given. Um, and this is really important, right? Because one of the things that we show about, that we teach about sacraments is that um, they are efficacious, that they're a tangible assurance that we've received the grace that we speak of. And, um, and furthermore, uh, that, uh, you know, it's so easy to doubt God's grace, isn't it? You just say, like, am I really at, you know, like, did I, what, was I really? Like, <laughs> and, and, why? Well, because we are physical beings, right? We don't live in God's world. We live in the flesh, and we have uh, fleshly appetites, we have fleshly desires, we have all these things circling around us all the time. Most of the time, our experience is not of the invisible, unseen world. What is our experience of? The visible, seen world. That's where we live. Um, and I think the, one of the things that just continually jumps out at me when we talk about the sacraments, just talk about sacramentality in general, is that um, God communicates to us through the physical world. Um, most particularly in the incarnation, right? I mean, a big part of the church's sacramental theology comes directly from the incarnation. God, the Son, takes on human flesh. He takes on a human body, a human soul, all of those things, right? And lives in the flesh. 
um, as, a, as a duality of both, um, uh, uh, well, created and uncreated, made and not made, right? Those things co-inhere in the incarnation. Um, and I think another thing to say, too, is, is something that um, Anglicanism has always kind of latched on, always, always latched on to, which is that um, there's a kind of, uh, especially when we think about things like the Eucharist, there is a kind of personal union between two different things, right? So like in the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ joined to bread and wine. Um, Lancelot Andrews talks about this as being kind of like a hypostatic union, right? He has this wonderful Christmas Eve sermon where he's talking about, um, by the way, Lancelot Andrews was the, translator, the chief translator of the King James Bible. He talks about uh, how when we think about the Eucharist, we should think about the incarnation and likewise, and that though what we taste is bread and wine, right, what we're receiving is the Son of God, <laughs> Just as if you met Jesus in the flesh, right, you would say, did I meet a human being? Did I meet just flesh? No, you met God. Do you see how those, those idioms, they, they, they work in that way, and they, and they apply sacramentally, so that's a really important part of this. Um, when we come to the question of are there other sacraments, um, uh, I will tell you this, um, I'm a, I'm a high church Anglican and committedly so, so I think that the language that we have is, is quite sufficient to establish things. Um, and so I say, yes, there are other sacraments. There are five of them. Uh, are, could there potentially be other sacraments? Well, yes, of course. But we name five, and we name five because that's uh, firmly within the tradition. Um, Anglicanism has delineated between those sacraments of the gospel that are ne generally necessary for salvation and the rest, right? So no one's teaching you, like, you must make a confession or you're going to hell. No one's teaching you, like, you must be ordained or you're going to hell, thanks be to God, or things like that, right? Um, which is really important because, in fact, in the late medieval period, the Roman Catholic Church had started to, and the church from which Anglicanism sprung, had started to require that people make their confession annually and had started to say there were certain sins that if you committed them, you had to make a confession or you were going to hell by dictate of the church. And Anglicanism fiercely um, opposed that thought. Why? I'm going to keep asking you this question, and you're going to keep responding. Because of Scripture, right? <laughs> like, it all goes back to Scripture. Does Scripture teach that? Well, no. So how can we require it? Um, does Scripture teach that, that, these, that the making of a confession is necessary to be saved? No. Um, so all of that um, is where we go with that. Okay. So let's, let's look at baptism, starting with question 126 on page 57. What is the outward and visible sign in baptism? The outward and visible sign is water, in which candidates are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the outward and visible sign is simply this, just water. Um, water in whatever form, um, and as we might cover later, in whatever quantity, <laughs> and, but water is the necessary thing, okay? And we'll say more about, uh, about that as we go forward. But the, the outward and visible sign is water, okay? In which candidates are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we could also say that the outward sign includes this speaking of these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
Actually, in Anglicanism, in order to be valid, those words have to be spoken verbatim in whatever language they're spoken in. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Um, which is why, <laughs> this is funny, if you ever look at the, at the baptism certificates we put out, they say, so-and-so was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit according to the rites of the Book of Common Prayers. <laughs> and why do we do all that? And actually say, with water. Uh, because today, that's actually not something we can just assume, right? There are a lot of churches practicing all kinds of baptisms, and, and uh, it gets a little bit dicey. Um, but let's talk about this. What is the inward and spiritual grace given in baptism? The inward and spiritual grace is death to sin and new birth to righteousness through union with Christ and His death and resurrection. I am born a sinner by nature, separated from God. But in baptism, through faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I am made a member of Christ's body and adopted as God's child and heir. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. Um, the inward and spiritual grace is death to sin and new birth to righteousness through union with Christ and His death and resurrection. Well, where do we get that idea? I'm really, I'm asking the same question over and over again. You're going to get really tired of it. Scripture, right? So, uh, you know, these, these, uh, these um, scriptural references are not just sort of given for fun. Um, they're actually the references. Uh, and here I would turn you to Romans chapter 6, where, where Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he uses this wonderful word that I love using with you, meganoito. No, absolutely not. No way. <laughs> no way, Jose. We can make it wherever you want. Um, but he says, do you not know that as many of you who are baptized into Christ were baptized also into his death? And if we were baptized in a death like his, then we'll certainly be raised in a resurrection like his. So for Paul, this language of, um, of baptism being tied directly to the death and resurrection of Jesus is not uh, anything that um, uh, is, is how he thinks about baptism. It's how the New Testament speaks of baptism. Um, and we might ask, well, where's that come from? Well, consider it for a moment that uh, the baptism of John in the Jordan is a baptism of what? Mark tells us what it is, as do the other gospel writers. It's a baptism of repentance right? So, the idea is you, you repent of your sins, uh, going out to the Jordan, you confess your sins, and, you, and what do you do? You get baptized, right? And the baptism is a sign of your new life as a repentant person, right? Even further than that, baptism was used as a kind of um, evangelical rite of initiation for Judaism. So, for God-fearing Jews, baptism became or for God-fearing Gentiles, baptism became a mode of uh, initiation into that life, which they couldn't, which they couldn't have, um, well, they couldn't have it necessarily by circumcision. They had to have it in some other way. So, part of this is you're, you're, you're entering into not just a baptism of repentance, but also a baptism of ritual purity as well, which is sort of interesting because the question is, can Gentiles really have ritual purity? Um, but, but there are some Jude Jewish sects that are saying yes, definitely. Um, keep in mind that Judaism in the first century is not monolithic, right? There are lots of different varieties. You've got the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes. You've got all kinds of other people that are just wild, and they're all over the place, right? But it seems to be that baptism in those days was a kind of um, uh, either a rite of initiation 
or uh, a kind of entering into the water for the purposes of ritual purity, right? Or both, right? So there's, there's a lot to be said about this, and, and it's not entirely clear historically what, what this was. But we do know from the New Testament that people were going out to be baptized by John on the Jordan as a baptism of repentance, and it's not entirely clear that they were doing so for ritual purposes. Now, they could be doing it for ritual purposes, and in fact, Jews were entering into baptismal waters in that sense in order to enter into the temple. Okay. Now, what's my point about all this? Well, my point about this is that um, this could be repeated over and over again, this, this baptism. Uh, why? Well, because you have to repent over and over and over again, right? Um, you live in the world as one who gets the world on you, right? And in order to enter into God's world, specifically in the temple, what do you have to do? You have to wash all that life away and enter into the temple a clean new person, right? Um, because there's an understanding that uh, God's world is not like our world, <laughs> uh, that, that the unseen world that the temple actually shows you is something different, okay? So, one way to think about this is um, the, the temple in those days, and I'm going somewhere with this, so just hang on, uh, was a microcosm of creation, and not just creation, but the whole order of the universe, right? So, think about it for a moment. If you've ever seen models of the temple, you'll see, like, there's the, there's the tabernacle, right, this kind of central portion, um, including the Holy of Holies, where in the old days, prior to the, you know, prior to the Babylonian conquest, it's where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it's, it's a very mysterious place. It's a place the priest enters into once a year. It's uh, where the law is kept. It's where God is, right? God's in the center of the temple. Surrounding that, you have these various courts that are, that are determined by not only uh, your status as either a Gentile or a Jew, but also your status as a man or a woman or a priest or not a priest, right? And, and you kind of have these outer courts. And part of the idea is that um, the, the temple shows forth uh, where you are in creation. Does that make sense? Like, is that a helpful idea? Right, so and part of this that I really want you to get is that um, ancient religions as today and in fact, one of the things we're always after as human beings is to know where we are, right? We always want to know this, like, where am I? And so in a sense, like, the temple is a map that shows you where you are within creation, where you're situated. That's really important. You have to know that, because if you don't know that, well, then who are you? What are you doing? What's your life about? So to enter into the temple is to enter into God's uh, uh, world, in a sense, uh, to enter into a whole, it absolutely is to enter into a holy place. But this is, the, this is the other point. What's in front of the temple as you go in? Baths, right? If you go to the ruins of the temple today, you can see these. They're baths. They're giant things. And you can, uh, people would go into the baths, they'd come up, they'd go up the steps, and they'd go into the temple, right? Because you can't go in in your current state because what will happen to you? You will die, right? You might die is the point. So you, you go into the baths to become ritually clean, and furthermore, this is not just about sin. These baths are not just about removing sin. That's not it. Um, it's, it's much more about receiving um, um, uh, a, a new status, right, or a renewed status before entering into the temple. Now, I want to say all of that because 
the first, very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, preached by Peter, is preached on the steps of the temple, heading up into the temple, and the baths are right there, and people are probably going into the baths to uh, enter into the temple on that day, right? Because Pentecost was a major festival of the, of, of the Jewish calendar. And Peter preaches the sermon, and the people respond, well, what the heck do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the promised Holy Spirit. So where are they baptized? Right in these Jewish ritual purification baths, more than likely. What's different about this is that this is a one-time thing. Um, he absolutely gives you a different take on what, this, what the meaning of this is. Um, he's saying, for the forgiveness of sins, you'll receive the promised Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and 3,000 are baptized that day. Okay. Um, and he says, and this promise is for you and for your children and for your children's children and for those who are far off as well. So that's another aspect of this. The only reason I say that is because we often lose this perspective, that baptism is actually something that comes well in advance of the New Testament, um, and which um, Jesus, by his teaching to the apostles, actually gives quite a bit of context for what this baptism will be. And you can see that in the Gospel of John, you can see that in, uh, in various points. But, but what is this baptism? Well, it's a baptism that John says will be different from his baptism because it will be a baptism by fire and the Holy Spirit. Now, thanks be to God, we don't baptize anybody with fire, right? But what's he talking about here? What does fire do? Yeah, we don't think about this, but fire cleanses, right? Fire um, takes you down to the absolute steadfast identity, et cetera, right? It takes you down to what is what remains. And there's lots of uh, language in the New Testament about this. Um, kind of like burning away dross, which is this, you know, anything that's not a precious metal will just burn away in the fire. Okay. Um, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, and obviously there's, um, on the day of Pentecost, you have the imagery of, of the Holy Spirit descending his tongues of what? Fire, right? Well, what's the fire there for? Okay, I'm going to take you back. Pentecost is a harvest festival. What do you do on the harvest of wheat? Right, this is the spring wheat festival. You, you harvest wheat, and you take the wheat up to the temple, right? And, and there you, you sacrifice it. It's a, it's a grain offering. What do you do also when you harvest wheat? You separate the grain from the chaff. And what do you do with the chaff? You burn it, right? Um, so, so the day of Pentecost is about judgment as much as it's about harvest, so baptism is a kind of like preemptive judgment, right? Um, and I think we have to kind of hold that up and say that's what's going on too in the New Testament. And the reason I say all of this is that um, many of you grew up in traditions that were much more comfortable with symbolic language regarding baptism and not so comfortable with this kind of in-depth sacramental theological language about baptism. It's clear to me that the language that Paul uses regarding baptism is deeply sacramental, right? It's the language that Jesus uses about baptism, deeply sacramental. There would be no possibility even, even in thinking about John's baptism or other baptisms uh, given by various Jewish sects to say something like, well, it's just a symbol, right? Because there's not even an awareness of how that could be the case, right? Um, there's not even a thought that that might be it, even with these other baptisms. So I want you to want to put that in front of you. Um, I'm born, the, the catechism says, a sinner by nature, 
So there's this other aspect of baptism which is really important. It's this rebirth, right? So if we look to Jesus' uh, dialogue with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you see all of this language come out. Remember what Nicodemus says, um, oh, I have to be born again, right? I have to be born by water and the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? And Nicodemus thinks like, well, so do I climb back up into my mother's womb and be born again? And he's, he's of course, joking. He's like, well, that's not possible. So what is possible, Jesus? And, and Jesus repeats himself, right? There's this, and, and with stronger language even. Um, and and he, he calls him to this, like, you have to be reborn. You have to be, uh, in, in a sense, the, the word that we would use would be like regenerate, right? Um, re, re meaning again, generate meaning born again, right? So um, this is an emphasis there. Um, the language of the New Testament certainly uses this language of regeneration, um, actually directly, right? Um, this language of new birth. Well, why? Because there's always, there's always this question, like, Every time a baby's born, you know, we should always ask, is this baby just born to die? Is that it? Like, is that all it's about? And, and what, what's happening in the New Testament is, no, there's another life, right? So you could even use C.S. Lewis's understanding of, there's, there's, there's two different kinds of life, right? There's bios, which is kind of life that we have um, in the body. Um, and then there's, uh, somebody help me out here. What's the other kind of life? Zoe, that's right. <laughs> There's the life which is the divine life in a sense, right? This supernatural life. And in order to live the supernatural life, you have to be born into it. Um, born as an adopted child of God, born to this new life. Um, and the scriptures certainly use that language, okay? Um, the water of regeneration, right? The, uh, and it's all shot throughout, okay? Um, but I'm born a sinner by nature. So what, is, what does it mean to be born a sinner? I'm going in depth here because I've got, I've got, you know, I really want to make this, drive all this home. What does it mean to be born a sinner? Like, okay, we don't like to think about newborn babies as being born sinners, right? Because it's like, oh, like how? This baby is like pristine. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, 14 years down the road, what happens? <laughs> Like, right? And there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do. Like, nothing. But see, this is, this is, the, this is the struggle, is that all of us receive this, this, this stain, this mark, um, even newborn babies. And, and I would simply say, like, the reason we know that newborn babies are born in sin is that they die. <laughs> Sometimes they die before they're even born. Um, that should tell us something, that, that being captive to death is a marker of our sinful nature, okay? or the mark of sin upon our nature. I'm born a sinner by nature, separated from God. To be separate from God is to be separate from this life of God. But in baptism, through faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, so I want to lay out, lay out these in particular, I'm made a member of Christ's body and adopted as God's child and heir. So, for many of you, you grew up in traditions that did not practice infant baptism, and so I want to say to you something which, which might just kind of make this clearer, which is that when we think about baptism, we need to try as hard as we can to not think about babies. <laughs> Why? Because theologically, we need to think about someone who comes to faith, repents of sin, and is baptized. That's what we need to think about theologically. 
In fact, what we should think about theologically when it comes to babies and infants and small children is something much more like a dispensation from the rule which requires faith in Christ, which requires repentance. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Because they can only be baptized by faith insofar as they're able to have it, right? Um, but the norm in the, in the ancient world and the way that they thought about baptism was adults coming to baptism. That was the norm by far. So I want to say that strongly, that infant baptism was not normative in the ancient world, although I will tell you strongly, it was practiced, right? Um, but the way they thought about baptism was, was adult believers coming to faith in Christ, being catechized, and coming to the waters of baptism in that way. So um, when we speak about this, we need to think clearly about what's going on here, right? That, that this faith is not sort of dispensed with as a general rule, but as a dispensation on behalf of, you know, the fact that, and I want you to hear this, you know, when we baptize infants at Christ Church, it's because the parents are faithful believers, right? There's, there's no question about that. We're not going around baptizing, you know, anybody and their brother, right? We just don't do that. Um, okay, so are we good so far? All right. Next, we use language that's taken directly from the Catechism of 1662, which is this, I am made a member of Christ's body and adopted as God's child and heir. Now, for this, I want to turn you um, to Colossians chapter 2. I'll, I'll read it for you. Um, starting in verse 9. So, he's, Paul's talking about, um, he's, he's warning them against being... Uh, taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. No offense to the philosophers among us, you know. Don't be taken captive by philosophy, okay? Um, which really is probably something much more like sophistry, right? Um, and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You've been filled. So actually, I'm going to say a lot today, especially later on in the parish annual meeting, about what it, what, what, it, what, what it means when Paul talks about filled. Filled is much more something like making you grown up, like overflowingly giving you lots and lots of grace so that you are like perfectly what God made you to be, right? That's what that is. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, because this is really wild, like putting off one body, by the circumcision of Christ, which is really strange, like what, what's he talking about, the circumcision of Christ? And I'll actually, I actually want to lay this all out for you. Um, hang on. Okay. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, being made a, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay. So when he speaks about the circumcision of Christ, is he talking about Jesus' literal circumcision? I'm going to jump out and say no, right? There's a great tradition of this. Like Origen, Athanasius, they both say that's not what he's talking about here. They say he's talking about being on the cross as his circumcision. Okay, so I want you to think about that for a moment. The, the tie between the cross and circumcision is such that what happens? Look, Jesus is laid bare on the cross, right? He's, he's naked on the cross. 
He's laid bare before God. His heart is laid bare before God. His whole self is bare before God. Um, And then he makes reference, having been buried with him in baptism. So there's this union between the the Christian and Christ. Um, And so Paul is actually saying that whatever circumcision was is actually a type for this new thing that God will do and that God has done in in Christ. Um, Well, what happens? Well, think about this. In the Old Testament, what happens when you're circumcised? (laughs) Come on, Hebrew scholar. (laughs) Okay, you become a member of the covenant, right? That's essentially what happens, right? God makes a covenant with Abraham. He lays out animals, marches around them, and there's a light lamp and a light post, and God says, I'm going to give you all this land, and I'm going to give you a name, and I'm going to give you a heritage, and I'm going to be your God, okay? What is Abraham? Abraham is God's person, God's chosen people, right? In a man. And everybody that comes after him follows into that, okay? So by identifying in this way, you become a part of that whole covenant kind of, I would just say family, right? Um, Now, of course, it's only for men, which is disappointing. Uh, And what else? You're, you're captive to it. So you're captive to the law as well by being circumcised, um, which, well, let's just be honest, isn't going to go well, <laughs> um, but you're still captive to it. And so all of this kind of comes together. But is it really, <laughs> does it really work? Like Paul's answer is no, it really doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Like whatever it's supposed to be doesn't work. But he, he's talking about here in Colossians how being joined with Christ in baptism, okay, and he says this explicitly, right? Have, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, see, he's, he's, he's throwing these two things together, the death and resurrection of Jesus with our baptism into his death and resurrection. Does that, does that kind of sit there with you for a moment? Like, this, this idea that Christ is the one who is circumcised on the cross, right? He's laid bare before God, and he, um, as, as, uh, as the letter to the Hebrews will put it, he leads a whole host of captivity captive, right? He leads us, right? Um, and the language that Paul continually uses as well is that uh, when he goes to the right hand of the Father in his ascension, who goes with him? Those who've died and have been risen with him. They go with him right? So, uh, and this is what leads Paul to say, like, your, your life is hidden with God in Christ, okay? Um, you're seeing where all this is going? Like, this is really strong language. It's about as strong as it could possibly get regarding what happens in baptism, okay? And you might say, but if all that's the case, then why am I still like this <laughs> sinner with all these desires that are so messed up? And, and I'll just kind of say, um, to spoil it, um, baptism gives you a new status, but the work of sanctification is far from done. It's begun, um, but is it finished? No, because, because, look, the whole Christian life kind of subsists in this, in this kind of eschatological way. We're, we're looking forward to that thing which has already been begun in us, right? We, we anticipate in every way uh, entering into that thing, right? Just because, like, go back to the temple language, um, the temple being a kind of microcosm of creation, 
you're actually living out what your real identity is, what you really are, by going into the temple. In a sense, what you could say about baptism, which is why the baptismal font is there and not here, right? It's, it's an entry point, um, is you enter into this new life. Um, and it's not a life that you have, it's a life that God has, and a life that has been given in Jesus Christ. So there's the, also that connection with the incarnation. Okay, at the risk of going on too long on two, on two questions and getting nothing done, um, let's just ask, what, question 128, what is required of you when you come to be baptized? Two things are required, repentance, in which I turn away from sin, and faith, in which I turn to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and trust the promises that God makes to me in this sacrament. So when we, when, we, when we think about this, again, it's this, it's this emphasis theologically upon um, adults. Um, and what I, I would even use language that like our theological norm for thinking about baptism should be the baptism of adults. Um, and I will tell you, so I, I've had this experience many times over um, of, of baptizing adults who came to faith in the midst of our church and we're baptized on the Easter vigil, like amazing. And, you know, we're just like in tears and also like this immense amount of courage, um, renouncing sin, renouncing Satan, all these things, and then being baptized. And so when I think about baptism, I sort of train myself to think about that as what I think about, okay? Uh, because, because they've repented of sin and they've, and they've turned to the Lord in faith. Remember, there are two essential actions in in the right prior to baptism. Um, one is to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? We ask, do you renounce X, Y, Z? And you say, I renounce them, right? And then you turn, and we literally do this at Christ Church, with the parents and godparents, and you know, if we have adults, they turn. Um, they turn and they profess the Apostles' Creed. Um, if you really want to see something fun, uh, go over to St. Nicholas when they do a baptism, and you'll see it in the old ancient rite where... Um, uh, when, when someone's baptized, they renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then they spit. <laughs> like the godparents. <laughs> right? Because it's like, I'm done with that. Right? And then you turn and you, and you, and you affirm the faith. Okay? Um, and all of this is done, um, and it's been done for centuries. Like we have ancient texts that talk about this being done in even like the third century. Um, but especially in the fourth century. Uh, where this is, this is what happens, okay? Um, and you turn in faith. So these two things go together. And I would actually say this too, that this, this actually gives us an image of what repentance really is, right? Which repentance is not just turning away from sin. What is it? It's turning towards as well, turning towards God, turning towards new life. Um, and I think a lot of people get repentance wrong because they say, well, I quit that long ago. Well, what would you put in its place? Right? Um, I, had, I, once, I once heard a confession from someone who said, I don't think I've really like, committed any like, really terrible sin, and I sort of feel weird about that. And I was like, oh, gosh. You're either crazy or there's something else going on. I decided to go with the something else going on. I said, well, what haven't you done? And then it was like, <laughs> let me tell you about all that I have not done and all the things that I've like, you know, and, and it's like my prayer life's a disaster and all these other things. It's like, well, there you go, right? Your repentance was only halfway. Um, and so what we see in baptism is this, is this not just rejecting of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but this acceptance of new life in Christ. 
Uh, This is why Peter says on the steps of the temple, Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and be baptized, go together. All right, so let's talk about the baptism of infants. Question 129, why is it appropriate to baptize infants? Because it is a sign of God's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of Christ's church. Those who in faith and repentance present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will one day profess full Christian faith as their own. Okay, lots going on here, but we use this word, uh, this, this uh, embracing in the covenant community of Christ's church, to be embraced, right? Um, and of course, embrace literally means taken in the arms of Christ's covenant community. Um, which is actually a reference to Scripture, by the way. Remember this? Jesus takes a child in his arms, right? And, and speaks about the child. Um, because it is a sign of God's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of Christ's church. Okay, go ahead. Yep. Good, good question. Um, no, and, and here's what I'd say. Okay, I'm just want to I want to lay it all out. The, the and I'm, I'm going to give you as best I can to kind of get all this out there. The understanding again with infant baptism is that it's a dispensation from the norm. Right? Parents come and they say, "I want this new life in Christ to be given to my child because he's born into my family, not some pagan family." That's essentially what you say. You're like. This kid is going to grow up as a Christian. And this kid is not just going to grow up as a Christian, but is going to grow up as a Christian who receives the grace of the sacraments, right? Who receives the Eucharist, who receives, uh, you know, all, all that's there, right? All of that is given. Um, and I would say further that at least since round about like the ninth and 10th centuries, that's, that's what's supposed to happen in confirmation, right? It's supposed to be that you uh, take all of those promises as your own, and it's a big deal, right? So young Miss Cully is planning to do that, right? You're, you're, you're preparing for this confirmation, right? And you're going through this course as an adult, right? Even though no one would say you're an adult, I would, right? Because <laughs> what do adults do? Adult stuff, right? That's what makes you an adult, is that you do adult stuff. It's not that you're like mentally in one place. And you, it's, it's that you do adult things, like you do the dishes and you mow the lawn and all of that, right? So, and this is what I really, what I really desire to say here, is that adult ba- infant baptism is given with the understanding that you have parents and godparents who are actually literally in the language of the prayer books, although not this one that we have, um, they are sureties. Okay, what's a surety? Have you ever hired a contractor to do a job for you and they're bonded? Hopefully they're bonded. You should make sure they're bonded, right? Because this is the problem, okay? They get in your bathroom, they do the demolition, and then they get injured, 
which means what? oh no, I have this bathroom that's not getting done. What the bond does is it says, I can't do it, so I have this insurance policy that's going to say, now my brother's going to do it, <laughs> like, or whatever, right? Some, some other contractor is going to come in and do what I could not do. And that bond pays for that to be done. Okay, that's what a surety is. It's a surety bond, right? Um, I bought one for, uh, for a scooter that I have because I bought it, it didn't have a title, right? So I buy the surety bond, and the bond cost 100 bucks, and it basically says, and I had to show it to the state in order to get a bonded title, why did I do that? Well, in case an owner of that scooter comes forth and says, hold up, he can't have it, it's mine, then the bond either restores the property to the owner, and then chases me for what, <laughs> what it costs, or it just sort of says, okay, well, I'll give it back to you, right, because I, I I don't want to be in possession of stolen goods and all of that, right? So, so it's a way to say, this is what I think about when, when I've had my children baptized. I say, like, listen, I'm going to be a stand-in for them for this time, right? Now, getting back to the kind of, like, aesthetics of baptism, right? Like, why can't, why can't my children have that wonderful experience of going under the water and coming up again? Um, because it's actually a good thing, and God delights in it, when children are raised in a family with all of that in them. When it's not just like, I decide later. Um, God, God loves it when this happens. God delights in it. Like we'll look at the Old Testament, right? Circumcision is a mark upon the flesh, right? But it's, it's meant to say, I offer this child to God, and actually i hope that the child won't that this child won't remember that um what i hope they'll remember is growing up as a member of the covenant family of god that's what i want right i hope that they'll they'll give thanks for that life which has been in them from the start that's the point now here's what i'll say we are so obsessed with this idea that children have these um kind of rites of puberty, essentially, um, that they have these kinds of rites of passage, that we want to provide that for our children. Okay, fair enough, right? We have graduation, we ooh and ah over graduation, we, you know, ooh and ah over 13th birthdays and 16th birthdays and all that, right? But I think there's actually something quite good about saying, from the moment you're able, and insofar as you're able, you will start to do these things, right? Especially as I'm basically not giving you an option, I'm just going to tell you this is what you're doing, right? Um, and I say that as someone who was baptized as a small child, um, four months old, who grew up in the church, who grew up singing the very songs we sing here on Christ Church on Sunday mornings. And I'll just tell you, I don't regret it one darn bit, right? I don't regret any of that because I was given this precious gift as a child and I don't resent it either um, because at every step I've taken, at least insofar as I've been able to, I've taken the step of owning that as my own. And I've been given copious opportunities to do that, right? So that's what's going on here. And, and, and part of the understanding is that when you're able, then you'll start to take these as your own and you'll start, and you'll be confirmed and you will, you will, in a sense, enter into this fully adult life of faith, right? Um, and it will, it will be your own. But it's, but it's your own in a sense because you've been living it out already. Is that helpful? Like, I think... 
So if I can just be like openly critical, right, for a second of those who withhold baptism until the age of reason or whatever that means. Um, sorry to be <laughs> flippant about that, but I've never understood like, <laughs> so 14 is the age of reason? Like, hardly. Try again, right? Eight? Like, hardly, right? Um, I mean, I don't even, I'm 41 and I don't think I've reached the age of reason. Uh, but, but in a broader sense. It's, it's sort of this thought that says, and this is, what I re- this is where I'll really criticize it. We make umpteen decisions about our children that we do not let them make, right? Over time, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to give them decisions that are appropriate to them, right? But in the early years, nothing, right? It's like, what's for breakfast? Can I have chocolate for breakfast? No, you're going to eat cereal, right? Or something like this, you can have cereal or I'll fry you an egg. What do you want? So you give them decisions to make that are kind of safe, right? They're not going to make a bad decision because the options are good, right? Um, and it sort of says, we're going to make decisions about all of that, like whether you get vaccinated or not, or whether you have, you know, it's just a ton of decisions that all go in. They're constant. But on this one thing, that's you. Like at a certain point. With, yeah, and I'll freely admit, with some preparation for that moment, right? Like no doubt. Um, but let's just say, if it's important, then when does the decision get made? And I would just say early, right? Um, so that's just one thought. The other, the other thought that I'd say is that, and this is again when people ask, like, so why did you have your kids baptized? Well, I didn't want, I don't want my kids to ever remember a time when they did not come up to the rail and receive communion. Like, I grew up that way, and I, I'm thankful for it. I'm really thankful for it. Um, because in the darkest moments of my life, I knew that I was a child of God. I knew that I could come to receive this grace. Um, and without that baptism being there, then that's it. Okay, the other thing that I would say too, just to re- re- respond to one part of your question, which is to say, well, if infant baptism is, is good, then why not do it again later on down the road? Right? It's kind of like, if it's good, isn't it good to do like twice or three times or four times? It's like, because what actually happens in baptism, as we've said before, is you're buried with Christ in his death and raised to newness of life. And in fact, I would say that theologically, a second baptism is akin to reenacting the crucifixion. Like re-crucifying Christ. This is why Paul asks, like, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says, no. Why? Well, because you were buried with Christ in baptism, right? And if you do that again, you know, you're, you're going to kind of reenact this whole thing, and we don't, we're not doing that, right? The, the, the emphasis in, in Scripture is that this has happened once for all. It doesn't have to be reenacted. Um, and I would, I would turn you to places like Hebrews and uh, throughout, that this is a, this is a thing. The other thing I'd say, too, is that the language used in the New Testament in particular, and I'm going to end here because I don't have much time left, um, is, is that of the promises of baptism being given to the generations. Okay, so, you know, like 
If you accept as a premise that generational sin is real, right, and I, I will say that, right, I just say, like, it's real, like, you know. Um, my grandfather was a depressed, you know, drug addict who died drinking himself to death, okay? So there it is. I didn't know him. I never talked to him. He died well before I was born. Do I have some of that in me? I would be kidding myself if I wasn't, right? I definitely have it in me, totally. Like, and you might say, well, Father Nelson, really, you have the capacity to be a drug addict and drink yourself to death? It's like, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I would say, if I wasn't a Christian, that's exactly what I'd be doing right now. I, without a doubt. I would be depressed. I would be you know, probably divorced. I mean, it's a bunch of things, right? All at once. So if that's real, right, and we just say like, hey, that kind of stuff is real, that, that sin is real, then are we just going to say, but generational faithfulness matters nothing? I don't want to say that. Because in fact, Scripture says the opposite. Scripture says, hey, listen, like, I'm going to revisit the sins of the fathers to the, third, to the second and third generations, and I'm going to visit the righteousness of the fathers to the thousandth generation, which is all hyperbole, right? It's, it's meant to say, like, I'm way more interested in generational faithfulness than generational sin, okay? So having said that, what is it that Peter says after he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit? He says, this promise is for you and for your children, for your children's children, and for those who are far off, meaning like thousand generations off, okay? Laying it all out, okay? That seems to me to indicate that God intends it to be that Christian faithfulness is maintained generation after generation after generation. And it's on that assumption that we baptize children. Um, now, is it to say that these children are going to be saved? Ultimately? Like, well, no, right? Not at all. But it is to say the gifts of salvation are in them. It's definitely to say that. Um, and that the graces that which they need in order to do that are there, right? And I think this is another thing, that I, I just at the risk of piling on, um, it's one more point, which is that the church has always taught, always taught, that without grace, you can't be saved. Full stop. Like, Pelagius says, well, maybe you could sort of figure it out. Like, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? And what's the answer? Nine! No way! <laughs> it's like, shut up, Pelagius, you don't know what you're talking about, you have to have grace. Okay, that's the teaching. Right? And that's the teaching shot through the tradition, right? really is. Like, uh, you know, this isn't something where you know, Martin Luther wakes up in, the, in 1517 and says, you know, I was thinking about this, and Pelagius might have been wrong. Like, no, that's not how it works. Like, he knew that Pelagius was wrong because he knew that like, you can't do anything good without grace. He was trained in the, in the tradition. He knew it backwards and forwards, and he just says, this is it. Like, you can't attain to God's grace on your own power. You have to receive it. And because Luther, by the way, was Augustinian in his orientation theologically, he really believed that, right? And Augustine basically teaches this. You can't do jack crap good, okay, unless you've been a recipient of God's grace, particularly in baptism. Okay? So just lay that all out, right? You, you have to receive God's grace in order to do anything good and in order to be saved. And, and by the way, doing anything good doesn't even account for that because it's all grace anyway. So, like, here's what I'm saying. I want my children to grow up with all of that grace. 
all of it. I want them to have the opportunity um, to respond to God's grace in that way. And because I want that, and because I want them to have every grace they could possibly imagine, and be, here's the other part of it, full, right? Full of it, which, by the way, means grown up, etc., right? Um, and, and as far as I can tell from the New Testament, like, this is over and over and over again. It's Ephesians 4, it's Colossians 2, it's like, it's all over the place, right? That, that being full of the grace of God, just as Mary is what? Full of grace, right? Because why? Jesus takes up residence in her. The Son of God takes up residence in her. Well, what happens in us? Well, the Son of God takes up re- residence in us. Okay? That's what happens. That's what baptism's about. The Holy Spirit taking up residence in our bodies. Okay. All of that means that in order to become grown up in the sense that God thinks about it, which is not just like being a responsible adult, but what? Living into being made in the image of God, which means that you, like Jesus, are a child of God. You, like Jesus, are full of the Holy Spirit. You, like Jesus, um, are, are free from sin. Okay? See how that all goes together? Like to, to live a full life as a human being requires this. And so that's why I say, like, that's what I want for my kids, right? I don't want them to live a, a half-hearted life or a life that um, doesn't have the kind of grace that, um, that I want them to have. And, you know, and the reality of it, too, is that does that mean that unbaptized children have no grace? Again, we're speaking sacramentally here. Well, God can do whatever He wants. But why on earth would I tempt that? Like, that's like saying, you know, I, I teach my 16-year-old to drive, but don't bother to get her a license. Right? It's like, why would I do that? That doesn't make sense. Like, she's going to get arrested. Right? Um, and so I just say, like, as much as possible, like, I want my children to grow up in this way. Um, and, and, I, and I do so because I'm a Christian and I believe it. And I actually believe that God rewards the faithfulness of generations. And that part, okay, I'm going to go on a little bit longer, okay. This is actually all wrapped up in a theology of marriage as well, right? What are married people supposed to do? We've lost all of this thanks to the sexual revolution. We've just forgotten, like, oh my goodness, God has a purpose in marriage, okay? Like, that's right, be, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. What does it mean? It means, like, two things, actually, at the same time. It means have babies, okay? That's clear. It's the first commandment, right? And multiply, which means in every generation, multiply your life in the generations. Like, that's God's math, right? That's how it works. God doesn't do addition. He does multiplication, okay? Like, that's how it's supposed to be. That's why wheat brings forth not just one fold, but what? Like 30, 60, 100 fold, right? Um, and to illustrate that, I'll just kind of tell you a story about my grandfather really quickly. I'm sorry, I'm going to just do this. It always winds up this way, but it's like this. My grandfather was, uh, I was standing with my grandfather at a family reunion, Lake Cadillac in Michigan, which you've never, if you've never been there, it's like magnificent. It's everything you think about when you think about a Cadillac. Um, and, and we're looking out over this wonderful scene on this lake house lawn, and, and, and he's like, this is something, isn't it? And I said, that's amazing. He's like, there's got to be like 50 people here. You know, it, and he's like, think about it. 50 years ago, it was just your grandmother and I. So he was making a point. 
he was making a point about multiplication, how it's supposed to be, which is that man and woman bring forth multiplication. Their children are not meant to be different from them. God delights in the similarity between parents and their children. He loves that. Okay? So, he wants it to be that your children show forth the same kind of Christian faith that you have. He wants to give them the grace that you have. He doesn't want it to be any other way. Now, does that mean it's going to be? Well, no, but because God doesn't violate free will, okay? That's not what happens. But, but He does delight in it when, children, when parents take this responsibility seriously and when this life is multiplied out. So, there you go. We'll be start up next week with the Eucharist.